Yeah, well, this has been quite the weekend at Grumlaw Church, and my goodness, have we been getting it done. It all started off with on Friday, we had the first ever community movie night, as you already alluded to. Honestly, probably the greatest event the city, the community of Grand Blanc has ever seen or probably ever will see. We followed that up by the next day, went to Franklin Avenue Mission and served the people of Flint. That was incredible. Y'all showed up for that. Unbelievable. Now you get to be a part of this service today and what I would assume is going to be one of the greatest hours of your entire life. On the other side of that wall, they have an incredible kids program. I'm one of the best speakers on the planet. Our band are some of the greatest musicians on the planet. You all are so lucky that you even get to be here today. Guess what we are talking about today? Pride. So now you can all breathe a sigh of relief because judging by the looks on some of your faces, you're like, I think we're going to go to a new church. We are out on this place. Uh, we are, in fact, as alluded to, wrapping up a series that, again, we have been having a fun of, ton of fun with here over the summer called At the Movies. And what At the Movies is all about is taking a look at some of our favorite movies, taking a look at some of our favorite films, and hopefully bringing those to life in, in a new way that hopefully you have never experienced before. Now, as it turns out, this theme of, of pride happens to be a very, very common one in, in movies. This week as I was preparing, this week as I was writing the, this message, I was kind of just thinking through and racking my brain like all these different movies and it was so easy to identify pride happening over and over and over again. It almost seems like movies kind of hinge on at least one character, usually the central character, usually the antagonist being completely consumed by pride. Now, this is a, a little bit risky, but I think y'all appreciate it when I'm a little bit vulnerable here. I'm going to show you a, a list of some of my favorite movies and, and help you understand here exactly what I mean. Uh, the first one I wrote down was Dennis the Menace. I still secretly love that movie. Actually, it's not a secret because I just told you. Uh, but Dennis the Menace, uh, if you've never seen that, you got to watch. It's a hilarious comedy. Uh, Dennis's neighbor is, is this guy, Mr. Wilson, and Dennis just kind of repeatedly tortures uh, Mr. Wilson, but he's this grumpy kind of know-it-all that seems to know better than everyone else how to raise their kids, how to plant their garden. Uh, and so it kind of just shuts him off from the rest of the community, just kind of known as like the community curmudgeon. Moneyball uh, tells the true story of Billy Beam, who's the general manager of the Oakland Athletics baseball team. Uh, and he sets out to assemble a team basically completely on statistics. And the arrogant, the prideful characters in this movie uh, are, are the old scouts that kind of have their old way of doing things. And they think that statistics are just a pile of crud. They don't think there's any way that that's actually going to work. And obviously we fast forward to present day and literally every Every baseball team uses stats to assemble uh, their rosters. The Social Network, also a true story, tells the true story of, of Mark Zuckerberg, who is the founder and CEO of Facebook. Uh, throughout the entire film, he's portrayed as like an exceedingly arrogant guy until by the end of the movie, he's kind of like left alone, even though he has a lot of money, not many friends, uh, just waiting for that one additional friend request. The Mighty Ducks, and anybody Mighty Ducks fans in the house? Yeah, look at that. Even some young people, like they've seen the Mighty Ducks. Mighty Ducks, there's a lot of pride going on in the Mighty Ducks. Uh, initially with Gordon Bob Bay, a very successful defense attorney, and then he at one point gets a DUI, uh, and then he's forced to coach uh, this kind of community hockey team. It's like this ragtag group of misfits that really don't know what they're doing, and they come up against the Hawks, the mighty Hawks, right? I mean, like nobody can defeat the Hawks, and in the championship game, everybody assumes that they are going to get destroyed, but obviously the Mighty Ducks end up winning. Wreck-It Ralph. I watch a lot of Wreck-It Ralph these days because of my children. Uh, there's some pride going on there, most notable, uh, with King Candy, right? I mean, he's kind of trying to control the entire candy and the entire uh, video game universe and kind of pulling those strings, very prideful guy. And then the last one I wrote down 
was the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, the very prideful Warden Norton, who kind of just uses the, the, the prison as his own kind of playground, as his own kingdom. He, he enforces rules when he wants to, doesn't when he doesn't want to. Little does he realize that Andy Dufresne is sneaking around behind his back and eventually it would become his undoing. I'm telling you, you start looking through these movies and you start hunting for pride, it's almost scary how easy it is to find in every single movie. I, I came to the conclusion, so if you're thinking about making a movie, if you want to make a successful movie, you have to have at least one character that is completely consumed by pride, which, which made me further think, and mind you, this is just an observation, but nonetheless, I think probably something that every single person in this room has experienced, uh, that pride is really, really, really easy to see in other people, but it's next to impossible to see in ourselves. Again, you watch these movies and you're like, that's a prideful person, that's a prideful guy, that's a prideful woman. Oh my goodness, that person is arrogant. Oh my goodness, that person has an ego. But it's also true in our own lives, right? I mean, you, you can look around and say, oh my goodness, my, my dad is so arrogant. That coworker is so prideful. My boss is so arrogant. My sister is so arrogant and on and on and on and on. But it's next to impossible to see in ourselves. So easy to see it all around us, so easy to find it in these movies. So it only seemed natural that we would eventually land on this film. Okay, stand like this. All right, come on in, come on, come on. It's a huddle, guys, it's a huddle. Huddle, Latin for round. Come on, turn around. All right, there you go. All right, now, communication is the key. I signal the quarterback with the play, he relates it to you in the huddle, and then we try it on the field. Okay, let's do it. Okay, guys, so curl out to the fullback on two. Ready? Hey, wait a second. How can we never call a play for me? You're tackled, dipped. Hey, nobody calls me a dipped except my sister. <laughs> hey, guys, 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 the ball. You oh, always run the ball. Why can't I run the ball? Look off. You're slow and no one likes you. Says who? Everybody says I that. You can't go to my birthday. So what? Okay, guys, that was good for a first time. Let's try it again. probably have movies like this, but th this was one of those movies when I was younger. Conservatively, me and my brother probably watched it 50 times, maybe as many as like like 100 times probably would not be uh, uh, unthinkable. Uh, recently, actually, we recorded it on our DVR because it came on TV, and, and I'm happy to report that both of my children are pretty into the little giants, so it's like bringing back all these childhood memories as I, as I watch it with them. Now, for those of you that, that aren't familiar with this brilliant piece of cinematic art. I, I will catch you up to speed. You see if you can keep up. But it basically tells the story of, of Kevin uh, and Danny O'Shea. Kevin O'Shea has been the always successful older brother, successful in business, but most notably in athletics where he went and he played college football, uh, eventually won the Heisman Trophy, then went on to play in the NFL, and the whole town basically adores and worships Kevin O'Shea. Whereas Danny is the younger brother that has always been in the shadow. He's kind of been in the runt of, of the litter, wasn't very athletic, and he's always trying to live up to, to his brother's standard that he is kind 
of set. And so Kevin, one of his last goals that he has for his life, and and mind you, what what you kind of figure out as you watch these childhood movies is like, there are a lot of holes in the plots. Uh, But I'm watching it going, okay, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But one of Kevin O'Shea's big dreams for his life is that he would eventually win a Pop Warner football championship for his hometown. And so he decides he's going to coach this team. He's going to assemble the absolute best talent. But in the, while he's doing that, he cuts a lot of players that, mind you, aren't very talented, uh, but like, you know, the, the, he, he doesn't want him on the team because, again, he just doesn't think that they're going to help him to win. But Danny O'Shea, his younger brother, he, he doesn't think this is right. He thinks that every kid should have the opportunity to play football if they want to play football. So Danny ends up forming his own team with through like kind of this team of misfits that, again, aren't, aren't very good at football. But the problem is, is that each town can only have one team. And so the idea is proposed that these two teams will go ahead in, in one game playoff and whoever ends up winning that game gets to play for the Pop Warner Championship. And everybody assumes that the Little Giants are going to get absolutely throttled by the Cowboys, the more talented team. Now, as mentioned, every single movie has this arrogant, has this prideful character, and the Little Giants is certainly no exception. I mean, what makes you think that you could coach football? Kevin, I just heard no, about Danny, this now. Danny, I'm not I don't want to hear you about it. No, about Danny, you can't coach football. Hell, you couldn't even play football. Whose fault was that? Well, it wasn't my fault. Don't change the subject. Listen, who said life was fair? I mean, some of us run for touchdowns. Some of us uh, run the class projector. Well, what the hell's wrong with that? I ran the class projector. Yeah, I'm sure you were a great projectionist. Danny, listen to me. Guys like you and kids like that, I mean, they can't help it. They're no good. You know, but they learn things. I mean, they invent things. They win Nobel Prizes. Einstein. Could he catch? Did anybody care? No. Danny, listen to me. Listen to me. Danny. I mean, listen to me. These things that you do with the kids, I mean, I think they're great. No, but I mean, I think they're admirable. You want to start a chess club, a little nature walk class? This is fine. So let me get this straight. It's okay with you if I do something with the kids. Sure. But not football. Exactly. I knew you'd see it my way. No, I don't. Pardon me? I I don't see it your way. I've really never seen it your way. I hate your way. Now, what's gotten into you? What's gotten into me, I'll tell you. You've gotten into me, and I'm sick of it. We're forming our own team. League rules clearly state one town, one team. You can't have two teams. Let's have a playoff. That's a great idea, Wilbur. How about it, fellas? How about it? Two Saturdays from today, 12 noon. Meet me at half court. It's the 50-yard line, Dad! Danny. You don't stand a chance. We just want to play. It really was a fantastic idea by Wilbur. Now, really... Uh, from the first scene, you find yourself kind of wanting to punch Kevin O'Shea because he is so arrogant, because he is so prideful. His ego is almost intoxicating. Uh, and isn't that interesting that, that no matter who you are here today, uh, whether you're young, whether you're old, regardless of what your background looks like, whether you call yourself a Christian, whether you not call yourself a Christian, we all universally agree on that. We are all universally turned off by pride. 
I mentioned a couple of weeks ago uh, that as a staff, we, we recently got done reading a book called Mere Christianity, written by a guy named C.S. Lewis. And uh, if, you, if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, just kind of want to learn the basics of the Christian faith, that would be an incredible book uh, for you to pick up because C.S. Lewis is just a master at wordsmithing and putting things in just easy to understand terms. But in this book, Mere Christianity, he, he dedicates an entire chapter to this subject uh, of pride. And, and one of the quotes just really jumped off the page to me. It's so brilliant. He says, there is no fault, referring to pride, which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more, when you know it, we dislike it in others. Uh, in, in my lifetime, and specifically now as a pastor, I've had people come up to me and own up to a lot of faults, a lot of different addictions, a lot of different mistakes, a lot of different sins. It kind of seems like it's just one of those things that comes with the territory. Uh, people seem to feel very vulnerable sharing things with the pastor they might otherwise not share with anyone else. And in fact, I love that part of my job, that we get to walk alongside people, you know, as they're going through some of these things. I, I've had a lot of people come up to me and speak about their struggle with alcohol. I've had a lot of people come up to me and tell me, oh my gosh, my, my marriage just seems like it's falling apart. I've had a lot of people come up to me and seek advice. Okay, what do we do with our, our rebellious teen that just seems to be going in the wrong direction? I've had a lot of people talk to me about their addictions to food, about their struggles with pornography, about a propensity to constantly compare themselves with the people around them. Anxiety, depression, gambling addictions, financial mistakes. So many people that have backed themselves into kind of these financial corners and they don't see a way out. All of this, and, and what I do for a living, is actually fairly common. Almost every week, I get one of those texts. I get one of those emails. I get one of those phone calls. But, but you know what's never happened? And, and I don't suspect probably ever will happen. I, I've never had that person pull me to the side after church. I've never gotten that text. I've never gotten that email. I've never gotten that frantic phone call in the middle of the night where somebody just needs to talk. I've never gotten any of that and had somebody utter these words. I have a pride issue. Nothing even close to it. It's not happened, not once. Now, now maybe that doesn't seem strange to you, but, but to me, this seems particularly bizarre. And here's why, because pride is the gateway by which all other sin enters. Pride's that door by which all other sin finds its way into our lives. Now, I, I totally understand this, that, that a lot of you that are here today, you're maybe not totally comfortable using that word sin. I mean, it just feels like, Oh, it feels so heavy. It feels so dramatic. And it's not exactly this word that, that any of us probably use on a regular basis. I, I, any of you, you know, if your spouse does something wrong to you, you look at them and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that you sinned against me. When, when, your when your child misbehaves, you don't look at them and say, do you know that you sinned against mommy? Do you know that you sinned against daddy? We prefer words like mistake or I screwed up, or we say things like my bad. But in the context of Christianity, we would refer to all of this as sin. And pride is that door by which all other sin finds its way into our lives. It is indeed what leads to every other vice. Let me explain what I mean by that. Every sin, I think we would agree on this, every sin is contempt of God. Every sin is disrespect. Every sin is disdain towards God. Whether we would admit it or not, in this part we probably would not like to admit it, when we sin, we are very clearly saying to God, I care very little about you. I care very little about your commands. I care very little about pleasing you. I don't respect you, at least in this moment. I care about pleasing me. I care about what, what seems best for me in this moment. I, I know you love me so much. 
I know you went to enormous lengths to demonstrate that love for me when you died on a cross for me, but yet I'm still going with me. And if every sin is disrespect towards God, and every disrespect of God is pride, because what could possibly be more proud, more arrogant, more defiant, more all about me than to despise or to scorn God, to think so highly of yourself that you would look at God, that you would look at your creator and say, I know that you created the heavens and the earth. I know that you knit me together in my mother's womb. I know that you have the very hairs on my head numbered. I know you love me. I know you went to enormous lengths to win me back, but sorry, I'm still going with me. I, I can't speak for you guys, but, but for me, I, I don't know if there's anything more disgusting about me than that. When I think about my pride, when I think about my sin in those terms, it's an incredibly sobering thought. Now, I, I grew up in a home where this topic of pride wasn't terribly uncommon. In fact, my parents would take very, and still to this day, take very intentional steps to make sure that pride does not grab a hold of their lives. And so for that reason, pride could actually be a little bit confusing for me. Um, I grew up uh, in a home where, where both of my parents were Jesus followers, and I was a bit of a rebellious teen. I was kind of the typical pastor's kid that went off and kind of did my own thing and, and made a lot of poor decisions. And as I was thinking about this and preparing this message, I, I thought of one time, me and a group of friends, we went up north to go skiing for Boyne for the weekend, and we knew we were going to get some snow. So my dad said, okay, you can take my car, you can take my, my prized possession, my Jeep, but you know, just don't do anything stupid. He literally said those words, don't do anything stupid. Well, the entire way up north, two of my friends that were sitting in the back seat were, were slamming beers as we were driving up there. And the entire time, I'm feeling pretty nervous because I'm like, oh my gosh, if they spill, if my dad finds out about this, he is going to murder me. And so we get the car back home at the end of the weekend. I make sure I clean it out really, really well. Uh, I'll never forget this. About 48 hours later, my dad comes around the corner into my bedroom holding an empty uh, Miller High Life can. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably not good because I know my dad does not drink beer, in particular of the High Life. So yeah, uh, that's not, not a good thing right now. Uh, not a good day. Um, there were other more, you know, you know, smaller infractions, if you will, too, where, you know, I, I went to a high school where you had a dress code, and I'd get detention for not having my shirt tucked in, or I forgot to wear a belt, or I didn't have the right shoes on. I'd walk into church sometimes. I used to have, like, this head, like, you know, head full of, like, huge hair, you know, and I went, like, all over the place. It was super full, and I'd walk into church on Sunday morning sometimes, and my dad would be looking at me like, seriously, son, like, you couldn't run a comb through it? One of the questions that my dad would ask me, big and small, in, in these moments, over and over and over again was this, don't you have any pride. I remember they yelled that can up. He said, don't, son, don't you have any pride? Son, you got another detention? Don't you have any pride? So I got to tell you, this was a little bit confusing for me for a good chunk of my life because I'm like, I'm not going to say it out loud because he's ticked off at me right now, but I'm like, don't you have any pride? Dad, I thought pride was a sin. I thought pride was wrong. So, so why are you asking me if I, if I have any of it, insinuating that I'm almost supposed to have more of it? And so it's certainly important to note that as we talk about this subject here this morning, there, there are two very distinct types of pride. The first one I'll call, I'm so proud of you, pride. This is that healthy feeling of pleasure or satisfaction deriving from your achievements, or more notably, the achievements of people that you care very much about. This is that pride you feel, parents, when your kid works their tail off studying for a test, and they come home and they told you that they got an A. 
That, that this is that sense of pride that you feel when, when you've been working really hard to pay off the, that college debt, pay off those college loans, and you finally make that last payment. That this is that feeling that, that I had on Friday after movie night and kind of all the dust had settled, thinking about our team and, and how well people had stepped off and, and just how the whole event ran so smoothly. But then there's obviously a second type of pride. We'll call that check me out pride. This pride is excessive self-confidence. It's a preoccupation with yourself. It's an extravagant belief in your own abilities that actually interferes with your recognition of God's grace. And, and this is the pride that we're gonna be focusing in on this morning. And it's not because we're trying to focus in on the negative, but just very practically speaking, I've never met anyone that has an I'm so proud of you pride issue. But we all have met a, a whole mess of people that have a check me out pride problem. I think one of the things we can trick ourselves into when we think of pride is we, we try to think of these big, almost these massive mistakes, these massive sins in our lives, and we completely overlook the smaller, less noticeable, far more frequent examples of pride in our lives. It's that unwillingness to, to accept help. Maybe it's financial help. Maybe it's help with a project at work. Maybe it's help with an assignment at school that you just won't take the help because you're so scared somebody else will screw it up. They're those small feelings of prejudice that you feel towards other races. Not taking advice from other people because you know that your way is the best way. Waiting to the last minute to complete tasks because, well, it's worked out for you in the past, so why wouldn't it work out again? See, pride doesn't take notes. Pride doesn't read books. Pride doesn't learn anything new unless it's the absolute bare minimum to get by. Pride doesn't accept responsibility for your failures, but instead it blames anyone and everyone else. Pride doesn't listen, but instead all it does is talk, 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 particularly around those people that you really have something to learn from. Pride doesn't take correction or criticism without resentment, without retaliation. Pride resists moving out of personal comfort zones in work and study and ministry and relationship, and instead it always looks for the easy and the familiar route. And here's the reality this morning. This is not a me against you talk. This isn't a Christian against a non-Christian talk. This isn't the pastor against the world talk. This is a human being talk. Because at some level, every single person in this room struggles with this. So some of you, but by the grace of God, you began to get this under control. And, and others of you, it's completely out of hand. And chances are you have little to no self-awareness that it's gotten that bad. In fact, as C.S. Lewis alluded to, if you want to figure out just how much pride you have, the question you ought to ask yourself is, how much do I dislike it when I see pride in other people? How much does it irritate you when you see pride in others? Because see, there's a correlation there. The more it irritates you, the more it exists in you. Because pride, think about it, is inherently competitive. Your pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. What makes us proud is having more than someone else. We're proud of having more, of achieving more, of being better looking, of knowing more, of having a bigger house, of having a better house, of having more of those. It's the pleasure of being above everyone else. Once that element of competition is gone, so has the pride gone. Now, since this is something that, that people have seemed to struggle with since the beginning of time, and I suspect people always will struggle with, Jesus, during his couple of years here on earth, he had a lot to say on this topic of pride, and he taught a lot on this topic of pride, but most notably, he modeled how to handle pride. And full disclosure, 
When I initially sat down to, to, to write this talk, we had a, an entirely different passage of scripture picked out, but for whatever reason, I just felt God was like nudging me towards this particular story, and I didn't provide any resistance for that because it's one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. Uh, it's a passage that I've taught from uh, many, many times, but certainly never gets old for me. Now, to kind of set this up, uh, the context of what we're about to step into here in the book of John, uh, Jesus is teaching in front of the temple, as he often would. And whenever Jesus would teach, really whenever Jesus would open up his mouth in a public setting, crowds would gather because he taught in a way that was just so compelling. It says oftentimes in scripture that he had real authority. He was so passionate about the things that he was saying. And so this is one of those scenarios, a big crowd is gathered, listen to Jesus. And then out of nowhere, a woman is thrust in front of Jesus. And then following closely behind this woman are, are these religious leaders of the day. And so we're going to go here to the book of John. Uh, John is one of the first books of the New Testament, which is kind of the second half of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John composed the Gospels, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying good news. And we would call these good news because they document Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. So it's John chapter 8. It says this, teacher, they said to Jesus, and these are the religious people talking. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, it's important to note here that this law of Moses thing, these were 613 laws that if you were a good Jewish man, if you were a good Jewish woman, that you had to follow these 613 laws perfectly. But, but here's the deal. It was an impossible standard to keep. Nobody was following those 613 laws perfectly. But the Pharisees, who were, which were a sect of Judaism, they, they practiced this very, very strict adherence, and they would hang these laws over the heads of other people so that they gave authority, so that they could gain leverage over the people that were underneath them. If you're here this morning and you're new to this whole church thing, you're, you're, you're perhaps new to this whole Christianity thing, or maybe you, know, you used to go to church when you were younger, and you, know, you stepped away from Christianity for a pretty big chunk of your life, and now you're back and you're starting to explore this whole thing. If you're a person that has ever been turned off by Christianity because of judgmental, because of arrogant people, if you've ever looked at a church and thought to yourself, yeah, I, I don't really want to be associated with those people because they seem awfully hypocritical, if those thoughts have ever gone through your head, you are not alone. Jesus could not stand these people. Jesus was quick to condemn those people. In fact, the only people that he would condemn, the only people that he would lose it on during his time on earth. I think it would drive him nuts. I think it breaks his heart that he has somehow gotten associated with judgmental, stuffy, arrogant people because he was so far from that. Jesus was quick to show forgiveness. He was quick to show mercy to those people who had a contrite, who had a humble heart, as we're going to see here in just a second. It was the arrogant, it was the judgmental, it was the hypocritical, it was the religious people that lorded over their heads. Those are the people that he would lose it on. If you ever find your religion, are you doing the right things? Are you being better than the person next to you? If you ever have those feelings eliciting the, these thoughts of superiority, that is not Jesus. That is pride. That is your arrogance making an appearance. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Jesus is standing there. He's going, okay, fine. If, if that's what the law says, then that's what the law says. Who am I to, 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 to disobey the law and to tell you to not go with what the law says? But how about this? How about the person that has never sinned before? How about that person throws the first rock? In other words, he's going, you prideful people really think that you are somehow better than her? 
Come on, we all fall short. Do not be so naive to think that you are somehow better than her. That is competition. That is comparison creeping up, tricking these men into thinking that they are somehow better than this woman. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Put in their place, Reminded of their pride, reminded of their arrogance, they start walking away with their tails between their legs. And, and now it's just Jesus and this woman. And if, and if there was ever a time in the history of the world where, where, where there was a person that had every right to be judgmental, that had every right to, to wield his power, that had every right to, to judge, that had every right to put this woman in her place, it was Jesus. It says, then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? I mean, come on, there wasn't at least one of them that had the courage to throw the rock at you? I mean, after all, the law says so. So not one of them? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, and Jesus said, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, you have got to be kidding me. Those cowards, and then he leaned down and he grabbed a rock and he's like, well, then I'm going to throw it at you. And Jesus said, but the law says so. I mean, it's so clear. It says it right here that we are supposed to be able to stone you. So I will start. I will throw the first rock. No, no, no. It says, and Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. No matter how many times I read this story, it sends chills through my body. I literally get goosebumps. Neither do I. Jesus did not come to condemn. Jesus did not come to be a judge. Jesus did not come to wave his accolades around. He came to show love and grace and mercy to a world that so desperately needs it. Jesus had every right to be prideful. He had every right to be arrogant, but he instead chose the complete opposite. Jesus chose humility. Throughout his time on earth, and then most notably, when he chose to die on a cross for me and for you, in the most selfless act that this world has ever and will ever see, you should choose humility. If you're a Jesus follower, you are commanded to. If you are not a Jesus follower, you would be wise to because not only will this be better for the people around you, but in the long run, it will be better for you. Humble people are constantly learning. Humble people are willing to to admit that they don't have it all figured out. Humble people continue to get smarter and wiser rather than staying the same. Humble people do not give up easily, but they try again and again and again and again until they get it right. Humble people don't hang onto false ideas for the sake of being right. Humble people are refreshing to be around. Humble people better those around them and they better themselves. Paul, who is a guy that was responsible for spreading the name of Jesus around much of the ancient Mediterranean world in the first century, he had a lot to say about pride uh, in these various letters that he would write to these early Christian churches. Uh, In his letter to the early church in Philippi, he has this to say. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Don't be arrogant. Be humble. There's a song about that. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't be arrogant. 
Don't be prideful. Don't be selfish. Don't place yourself on a pedestal. Don't have an ego. Why though, Paul? I mean, why was this such a big idea to you? Why was this something that you felt like, like you needed to continue to reinforce? Jesus, why did you talk about this all the time? Why are you always trying to tell us to, you know, to be humble and not be arrogant and not be prideful? Why is this such a big deal? And I think Paul would say, and I think Jesus would say, and in fact, I think you would be smart enough to say, really practically speaking, because nobody likes those people. As we already said, Arrogant people don't even like other arrogant people. In long term, it never works out for those people. They always end up falling short. I recognize that, that some of you, you're probably dying to see how little giants ends. Oh, yeah. No mercy. No ball. time this morning that you've ever heard of that movie you already knew how it was going to end as soon as i gave you the synopsis you knew exactly how it was going to end because long-term pride always falls short pride always comes before the fall and, and as paul alludes to here we battle against this by choosing humility which practically speaking 99.9 percent .9 of the time means you place others ahead of you Place those around you ahead of you. If you've been showing up here for really any period of time, you might be catching on by this point that this seems to be a bit of a theme for Jesus. That this idea that you defer to the people around you, that you defer to your spouse, that you defer to your kids, that you defer to your parents, that you defer to your coworkers, that you always place the you around you ahead of you. For some of you, I have no doubt 
Your pride is the very thing that is standing between you and a relationship, an actual relationship with Jesus. Because that takes an enormous amount of humility. It is not until you see yourself as a sinner, as a prideful, arrogant sinner, that you will see a need for a savior. This is one of those things that is impossible long-term to conquer on our own. And it's why we need Jesus. It's why we're called to follow the example of Jesus, why we would be wise to follow the example of Jesus, who, remember, put on humility, placed others ahead of himself to a degree that we will never be able to fully appreciate. Your pride could be the very thing standing between you and a relationship with Jesus. Your pride might be the very thing that is severing ties between you and your spouse. Your pride could be the very thing that is costing you that relationship with that child. Your pride could very well be the thing that's standing between you and actually experiencing financial freedom. You have no idea what God might have in store for you if you would just choose humility. If you would just start placing the people around you ahead of you. And again, why should we do this? Because God did this. And aren't you glad that he did Aren't you glad that he sent his one and his only son to die for you so that you can experience life and life to the fullest?